0: Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles, if you have one, to Matthew 15. Uh, we've been doing a series on, Ma- on Mark, uh, Mark's gospel called Just Three Years, and uh, last week we looked in brief at this passage as we were seeing the way that Mark was writing these things to compare with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were very legalistic, and yet here's this woman who has nothing going for her, humanly speaking, where God should accept her, and, uh, and so we're looking at the same passage about the Canaanite woman but this time we're going to focus a little bit more in on her story, so it's going to feel a little bit similar to last week, but we're going to dig in a little bit. So if you're willing and able, let me invite you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read Matthew 15, verses 21 and, uh, through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, A Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. He did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and precious word. He's given it to us because he loves us and he wants us to understand the gospel of Jesus more clearly today. So let me pray and ask God to bless us. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for this passage. We just scratched the surface of it, but yet it already is ministering to our souls. And so what we pray right now is that you would bless us as we dig just a little bit deeper, to see the reservoirs of your grace that are to be found in it, to understand ourselves, our struggles, our needs, and to see your gracious and loving provision. Would you bless us? And Lord, you bless me. Um, I find myself less and less like you as I see myself more clearly. I find I'm more like the disciples. I would rather be like you. And so I pray today that you would let me listen in such a way to my own sermon that my heart would be pricked, my conscience would be uh, transformed, and my heart as well, that I would become more like you. Would you bless us? Would you bless all of us as we listen to your word as it's taught, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Jesus, uh, Jesus went to Tyre, T Y R E, for those of you who are taking notes. And this appears to be his only trip out. This appears to be his only trip outside of the borders of Israel during his three-year ministry, as far as we have recorded in the New Testament. And in going there, Jesus was—he uh, went to a place that the Pharisees would have considered unclean. But Jesus went there, knowing that he would not become unclean there. Instead, he would make the people there clean. He would not be defiled, but he would purify them. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about Tyre later, but the only record recorded uh, occurrence of interaction with anybody here is with this woman. That's it. And so I think we have something that we can learn from this one interaction that hopefully would help us in the whole of our lives. He went outside of Israel to go to Tyre to meet this woman. There's a lot we can learn. So Three points, they're going to appear on the board. You can take notes on that. But let's just begin to dig in a little bit and uh, understand a little bit what she's going through. At some point, you are going to be the culprit in somebody else's story. At some point in your life, you're going to get into a situation that you cannot fix and you're going to feel completely overwhelmed. At some point in your life, Uh, You're going to have one of your children or somebody that you love incredibly go through something horrible, and you're going to be desperate to try to change that but find that you can't. But what if all of those three things were happening at the same time? which is really what's going on with the woman in this passage. And because of that, uh, she feels desperate and anxious and overwhelmed and helpless. And you can probably relate to that to some degree because all three of these things are happening. She has done something and is the culprit of the story. Uh, She has hurt somebody that she loves and it is her daughter. So she's experiencing grief and desperation and guilt in an incredible swirling inner storm. So She thought probably, according to her cultural ideas, that she was doing right, but her cultural beliefs living in uh, Syria, Phoenicia at that time period almost destroyed her daughter, right? It was her fault, uh, her practices, her beliefs, her her lifestyle, her culture. These things led to the brokenness and her daughter being uh, oppressed by a spirit. So the woman's negative life decisions and beliefs didn't come, become a parent until they really started to impact her daughter. And then she could see, everything I've been living for is having a negative impact on my child. So her culture, I'll answer it, <laughs> her culture caused the problem. She couldn't redeem it. it, got, it um, but she got to the point where she realized, I have to go to this Jesus person because he's the only help I have. Jesus is simultaneously the person we most need and the person we most avoid, simultaneously the voice we most need to hear and the voice that we most dismiss. So for her, in the midst of the brokenness of her life, this horrible thing that's going on with the daughter, which we'll explain in just a moment, with the demon possession, is the crisis moment for her. This crisis moment where all of a sudden, pushing away Jesus seemed like a horrible idea because he's the only one who can help me. My culture can't help My practices, my religion—nothing can help me. So her desperation became a catalyst for clarity for her. Dan Allender said it this way: He said, "Crisis serves to remind us that we are fundamentally not in control. We're not, and that's where she came—is to realize she got stuck into a hard in a hard relationship, a hard situation that led her into a deeper." relationship or into a relationship with God and I find that to be the case is when our children when I talk to people when your children are struggling is when you hit your knees in prayer and you become desperate right I might pray for some of my knocks and scrapes and some things that are going with my body but I really pray when people I desperately love are being hurt and wounded and so Jesus uh, she went to Jesus and so let me just say this I've heard people say this before is when a person goes through a crisis in their lives and they call out to Jesus then at that point, a lot of people say that's not real faith if you cry out during a crisis. However, what we're looking at right here is uh, saying, no, Christ's faith is real faith. Is when you call out to Jesus, when you most desperately need him, that's real faith. So James Smith said this for all of us. As we need Christ, so we come to Christ, not once for all, but we continue to come. We must come to him in every trial, and every trouble, and every conflict to unburden our minds, to find rest for our souls. And so she's in the middle of her worst case scenario and she doesn't know anything else to do, but I've got to go to Jesus. And that's where you ought to go. And that's where I ought to go every time because he's the one who can carry that. He's the one who can bring redemption to it. I can't carry it, so I bring it to Jesus. So what's actually going on? That's her that's the way she feels as she's coming to Jesus, just as complete overwhelmed. You can hear it in her voice, crawling out and crying out, help me. So this woman's in the midst of a crisis. Jesus is there with his disciples, and she f- hears that Jesus is there. Now, he's there incognito. He's just going there with his apostles, probably to train and teach them for a little getaway because they can't get any break down in Israel. So they've left Israel, gone up to Syria, Phoenicia, uh, gone up to Tyre and Sidon just to get a little time away so we can teach. And uh, how did the woman even, or anybody there, recognize Jesus? Well, the way they recognized Jesus is because back in Mark chapter 3, verse 9, people from Tyre and Sidon, the news of Jesus had spread, they had come down to hear Jesus teach. So when Jesus showed up incognito, there were people who said, that's the guy, that's the guy down in Israel. So they recognized it. So she hears about Jesus, she's got a daughter who's demon-possessed, she goes to him But there's this incredible obstacle for her, is the very thing that's destroying her daughter the reason she can't go to Jesus. She has an unclean spirit. She's involved in all kinds of uh, uh, pagan idolatry, worshiping other gods. She can't go to Jesus without incurring guilt. And so in 1523, Jesus' disciples begged him, saying, send her away, which is really what any Jewish person would say, because... Uh, because of the pagan nature of what she's doing. Now, pagan's one of those words as a modern person, I don't use all the time. I don't drive, I don't leave Wendy's and say, you know, those were pagans there. I don't, I don't, we just don't talk that way. So, what does that word mean? Well, it's just, it's kind of a technical term. It was first used, I think, in the fourth century to describe worshipers of false gods or idols. It wasn't a bad word, it's just the way we're using it to say they didn't worship the Lord God, she worshiped other things. And so as we come into the passage, the reality is, is everything in the passage is saying she doesn't worship the Lord God. She doesn't have anything to do with him. So she's, uh, one passage she's called, she, here she's called a Canaanite. Now, if you know anything about the Canaanites in the Old Testament, they worshiped false gods and they were always attacking Israel. So it was a kind of a war, a battle between their gods. The Gentiles, uh, she's a Gentile. So that means that she's not Jewish. So she works, worships other gods. Atheism just really wasn't a thing back then. You worshiped something. If you didn't worship the Lord God, you worshiped something. She was Greek. And if you know anything about the Greeks, uh, they had their own pantheon of gods with Zeus and Apollos and other things. So, everything that's in this passage and everything that's talked about her here in Matthew and in Mark is saying she worshiped other gods. Even where she's from, Tyre uh, is mentioned in the Old Testament. Tyre was the home of Jezebel who introduced Baal worship into Israel when she married King Ahab back in the Old Testament. So everything here is saying this is somebody who is rejected as far as Israel is concerned. One commentator said this. Tyre probably represented the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that you could expect to encounter. So... Probably because that's the mindset that's there, uh, where she lives. This woman, there's no indication she might be a worshiper of the Lord God. So this is a fresh new thing for her. She's coming to Jesus and probably she's been involved in some things where her daughter ended up becoming possessed by a demon, which brings up the question, how does somebody actually become possessed by a demon? So anybody, I don't know, um, but I have talked to people in the past who have been in the occult. They talk about demonic activity. And they, will, they have said, you have to open up yourself to it. So don't try that at home, kids. Okay, We're not, we don't do that. But that's probably what happened. There's, there's something that's going on where her daughter, her, she's described in one passage is the little girl. My little girl is being oppressed by a demon. So They did something, maybe some ritual or something, that brought this into the little girl's life. And as we're looking at the passage, uh, she is oppressed severely by this demon. And other places in the scripture where it talks about what happens when people are being oppressed and possessed by a demon, it's pretty ugly. In a couple of passages, we're going to see a little boy who was possessed by a demon, and the demon would throw him into a fire to try to kill him or destroy him, or at least to injure him. We've already looked at the man who was possessed by a legion of demons, and he would go out into the rocks, and he would cut himself, and he would try to uh, he would break chains. He would fight people. So it's not something that's good. And so she comes to Jesus, and that's all we're going to say about demon possession. Okay, You're like, okay, this is not a sermon on demon possession. Okay, so she comes to Jesus. He's quiet at first, and then when he finally does speak, he says something that really, really bothers people is because he, he says it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. And that's really troubling for people. Jesus that we love, meek and mild Jesus, appears to have called this woman a dog. What is going on here? Um, I think people focus so much on what Jesus is saying about her. They don't really catch what he's saying to her. And it sounds at a glance like Jesus is putting her off. But I'm going to suggest to you it's the exact opposite. That if you were there, you would be seeing something different. It sounds like he's saying you have no part because you're not a Jew, but he's not putting her off. Let me give you these two reasons. One is Jesus appears to be, have given her permission to come. Two reasons for that. One is in Mark chapter 7, verse 27, which is not up here. But if you want to read that, here's, what it says is, Jesus says, Let the children be fed first. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to their dogs. So he says, let the children be fed first. And l- I love what Ligon Duncan said about this. He said, when, when Jesus said these words, it caught her attention. She said, so she would say, wait, let the children eat first? So there's a chance? Okay, I'll, I'll take the crumbs. Just give me the crumbs, right? I'll, I'll take the crumbs. So what's going on is uh, there's a little bit more going on than simply Jesus putting her off. And uh, William Barclay gives us some direction here even. He's a commentator. He says that the tone and the look with which something is said makes all the difference in the world. So when Jesus is talking about, um, let the, I, I, I was sent only to the lost tribe of Israel, right? If I say it like this, I was sent only to the lost tribe of Israel. That has one meaning to it. But if I say, I was sent only to the lost tribe of Israel. It invites some sort of a question, and conversation in the midst of it. And that's what Barclay says that Jesus appears to be doing here. It appears that he's inviting her forward because at first, if you notice in the text, she's at a distance and she's calling out and crying out for them. But when he says this, she comes forward and she bows on her knees right in front of him and says, Help me. So he said something to her in a tone of voice that didn't drive her away, but invited a deeper conversation. And then the second thing I think is really important here is he is doing something that's pretty amazing, that it, it takes the apostles another chapter, as we go through Mark and as we, as we go through uh, Matthew's gospel, it's the same, it takes at least another chapter for them to recognize that Jesus is the Christ. But she's come in this passage, and she calls him right off the bat, son of David, which is a messianic reference. Now the Messiah in the Old Testament, when we read that in the Old Testament, read the word Christ or the word Messiah in the New Testament, it's referring to uh, the king that was promised in the Old Testament from the line of David. The king who would step into the world to bring healing, to bring unity, to bring redemption. This is the king that would drive out all evil, all brokenness, wipe every tear from the eyes of all the people in the world, and he would reign over everything. So when the Messiah, the Christ, is being promised in the Old Testament, this is what she's acknowledging by saying, uh, son of David, she's saying, you're the Jewish Messiah. Now, the the apostles don't conclude that until we get into chapter 8. And so when this Gentile, former pagan woman, is before Jesus and says this, she gets it right when all of Israel has gotten it wrong. And so what does Jesus say to her? If you look at his words, what he says is he says, I was sent. I have come. I am the son of David, the Jewish Messiah. I am who you think I am. You have come to the right place. So he's acknowledging to her that her assumptions about him are true. He's not correcting her. He's receiving that. And he's saying, you've come to the right place. I was sent to do these things. So he's not putting her off. And if anything, he's stating a fact, and it makes total sense, doesn't it, that Jesus would say, I came first for the children, for the Jews, because he was the Jewish Messiah, and the Jews had received the promises, the scriptures, the prophets, the kings, the covenants, the commandments. Everything in the the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So who else would have understood his arrival when he came into the earth? So during his earthly ministry, Jesus spent the vast majority of his time dealing with the Jews, not with Gentiles. He didn't really target Gentiles. There are a few times in the Gospels where he interacts with, with them, but he had come primarily to interact with the people of Israel. And she doesn't give up. Verse 25, after Jesus has said he's come to the lost sheep of Israel, she calls him the son of God or the son of David. She calls him Lord three times. And what's fascinating about it is when she says, Lord, son of David, or she says, Lord, help me. Almost every commentary and things make a big deal of her saying, Lord. Because the way she says it in the original language is not a title of somebody distant. It has the the sense of being something that's personal and intimate for her. Where she's saying, my Lord. She's addressing him in some ways the way that my wife would address me as honey. It's directed to me, but she's addressing her affection to me. She's saying, Lord, as in he is not just Israel's Lord. He's my Lord. So what she's communicating is the story of the Jewish Messiah is her story. It has to be her story. The Jewish Messiah has to be her Messiah. That's her only hope. And that's the point that's coming through. There's only one God. And even though he chose to work primarily through the nation of Israel to bring a Jewish Messiah, Jesus is not merely the Messiah of the Jews. He is a Jewish Messiah, but he's the Messiah for the world. The Jewish Messiah is the world's Messiah, it's a salvation for all of mankind, for all who believe in him. So she's saying that the Christian Jewish story is her story. The story of Jesus the Messiah is. The story of the world. Not merely a story of the world. It is the story of the world. Not merely the Jewish story, but everybody's story. It was her story, and it's your story. So we need the Jewish Messiah because our need is the Jewish need. And you need the Christian Christ because the Christian need is your need. It's all the human need. So Jesus is the Christ. That story is our story. And so what's going on is she's saying, the old person that I was, that's gone. I'm now following the Jewish Messiah. He's the Lord. He is my Lord. And that happens whenever somebody comes to Jesus. We come and we express faith. Though this woman had no claim upon Jesus' miracle, she thought, I have to go to him. He's the only one. And what does that show? faith. In fact, Jesus says in uh, chapter 15, verse 28, he says, woman, you have great faith. And I love in the original language, uh, he says, you have mega faith. <laughs> you, you have mega faith. It sounds like a big gulp or something. You, know, you're, I have, you, have, you don't just have regular faith. You have mega faith, big faith, because she's crossing all of these lines, cultural lines, personal lines, her, everything to say, it's Jesus now. And what is that? That's faith. So in this passage, we actually have a good primer on biblical faith. Let me give you four things that we see in this passage. One is uh, faith is a personal trust, not simply that you believe that God is real, but you believe that he's the only God and he's good and he loves you. He's good and he loves you. So that's part of Christian faith is saying, I believe these things about God. I don't have any place at this table, but I believe he's the kind of God who would give me a place at the table because I believe he's that good. Two, and uh, you see this in a seed form with her. You see it fleshed out more clearly as you go through the New Testament. You trust that Jesus is your salvation. For her, it meant salvation from this really bad incident with my daughter. But for those who come to know Jesus and you know, after the re- crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection saying, I believe he. He died for my sins and I'm rescued for him, for, rescued by him. Three, and this is one you see taking place in here, is you trust him as you go through all of life's circumstances. He's with me and I trust him. Not just for the end when I stand before, but in every moment, every crisis, every concern, Jesus goes with me. So you entrust your life to him. You're never alone, but he's with you. And then four, you base your life on what he says in his word. I trust him. If I trust him for my ultimate salvation, if I trust that he's with me, if I trust him that he's good, it means I trust him what he said in his word. So this person with mega faith comes to Jesus and when she comes to Jesus, uh, she acknowledges that you are the Messiah and my story has to be found within the story of who you are and because of that, She had to cross the lines of her culture and go stand with Jesus rather than standing with her culture. And that's a big deal. And when she did that, that changed who she was. Because what faith essentially ends up being is the foundation of our lives. It's the foundation. and Everything in our lives, our thinking, our emotions, our values, is all built on our faith. It's not part of our lives. It's the framework for our lives. And so her entire framework is changing and she's becoming a different person. I love, uh, I'm weird because I love a lot of musicals. Um, uh, I love, Hamilton was really good. I liked Hamilton. My favorite of all time is Les Miserables. Love it. Um, I'm not going to sing anything. I'm not going to do that to you right now. Um, I've seen it twice in like auditoriums. I've seen the movie. Um, in the auditorium, it's better, frankly. Um, But one of my favorite parts in any of it is a powerful song, is Jean Valjean is a criminal. He's stole a loaf of bread, and he spends years in prison. And then finally he's released, and they say, hey, uh, they say, you know what that means? And he says, yes, it means I'm free. And they say, no, it means you get your yellow ticket of leave. So everywhere you go, you have to present your guilt. Everywhere you go, you have to tell people, I'm a thief, And that's your identity for the rest of your life. So there's this moment in the Spoiler. (laughs) um, There's this moment where Jean Valjean is is taken in by uh, a a Catholic priest. Um, And so he's brought in. They take care of him. They feed him. And then Jean Valjean sees some silver candlesticks. And he knows it's worth a lot of money. He has nothing, so he steals them. He's caught, and he is brought back to the priest. And the priest says, no, I gave those to him. And so he encounters great mercy and grace at the hands of this priest. And when he leaves, he does a lot of soul searching. And then he, he sings this song, and uh, he takes his yellow ticket of leave, and he says, Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. And he, tells, he tears up the old story the old verdict on his life and says I am now somebody new I'm no, I'm that person no longer now that happens Saint Augustine years and years ago uh, he had he lived a, a wild life when he was young he's finally converted and one day he's walking down the street and there's a woman that he spent uh, a lot of uh, illicit time with when he was in his youth and she's walking down the street and she sees him coming and she says Augustine Let's spend some time together. And he says, no, and he continues walking. She says, Augustine, Augustine, l- let's spend some time together. And he says, no. And then she says, Augustine, it is I. It's it's me. And he says, yes, but it is no longer I, Augustine. And what he's communicating is that person I used to be that did those things, I'm not that person anymore. My foundation has changed. I have mega faith. I believe in somebody else. I believe in a greater person. I believe in my trusted in him completely. This is a new life that he's seeking to live because and the platform has changed. So we get back to this passage and we look at it and the woman is receiving great mercy and grace from Jesus and her life is about, her life is changing right before our eyes. But then there's another group of people there that are watching. It's the disciples of Jesus. They're watching this transpire How do you think they're feeling at this point? That Jesus crossed, maybe Jesus crossed a line to go to her somehow, but they're watching as their master, this holy man, this this righteous person, uh, this loving person, uh, accepts this woman who has nothing going for her in terms of right living in the eyes of the world. And they have to realize there's something, it's got to be more than something I do that makes me right with God. Jesus accepts people apart from what they have done. He accepts them based on faith. Jesus accepts me based on faith, not my works, and it's none of the things that I might have depended depended upon. It's Jesus, Jesus alone, who saves. So Jesus here gives this woman confidence before God. She's confident that Jesus saves based on faith alone, but he also humbles the, the apostles. For this woman, it means faith does not, it means faith uh, that her sins does not, do not keep her from God. For his disciples, it means that their works do not bring them to God. And so we Jesus, see Jesus teaching this lesson through the gospels. Jesus is constantly driving people to God through faith and saying it's all by mercy, it's all by faith, it's all by grace. There's nothing you can do, there's nothing you have to do except come to Jesus with your need and say there is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in me and his grace will drive out all of my guilt because he paid for my sins on the cross. And so what this woman, when she comes to Jesus, she's actually getting more than she bargained for, because not only is her daughter healed, but she now has the Jewish Messiah at the center of her life, and that's going to change things for eternity. But one of the things I really think is fascinating about this story is her family story has just changed. She's raising her daughter in uh, Syrophoenicia, uh, in Canaan, yeah, you know, with, with her Canaanite heritage, in a Greek province, worshiping false gods, and her daughter, and it's just the way it works, is, is following along in her mother's footsteps. And when she comes to believe in Jesus, that changes not just her life, but now it changes her daughter's life, because her primary caregiver has come to faith in Jesus. And when you have somebody into your life that way, it changes things for you. So, I was reading today about a uh, – a mu- actually, actually I'm, I'm losing track of my days. It was yesterday I was reading it. So yesterday, you're kind of like, you were up early reading for – no, I was, it was yesterday. So I read about a Muslim man who now lives in the United States who was a Christian. He was a Muslim, now he's a Christian, and he told a story about how it happened. He lived in Tehran, in Iran, and he had – his family wanted nothing to do with Christianity, uh, they were told all their lives that Christians tweaked the, the, the Quran and made their own religion, that Christians tw- distorted the message and changed things in the Bible. And uh, they didn't want anything to do with Christians because they saw us as bad. But there was a Christian missionary kind of uh, under the radar in Iran, and he had a family member who started spending time with this missionary, heard the Bible preached and taught. And this family member became a Christian. And so this family member came to their house in Tehran and told, yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. And so we went to the house in Tehran, and there, uh, she starts sharing the gospel with this man's mother and with his sisters and with his father. And he said he did not know what was going to happen with his family because he thought they were just going to kick her out, but the Holy Spirit was at work. And they believed what was being said. He said it was almost palpable that he had this sense that God was really speaking to him. And he said in Islam, he had never heard anything from a cleric about the forgiveness of God and the peace that you could have with God. And he said he went away into his room and he prayed a prayer to say, I want this Jesus. So he started reading his Bible under the radar, started trying to have uh, have underground churches planted in Iran got in trouble, and he left. But meanwhile, his family is still there. All have been converted to faith in Jesus Christ. When one person is converted, it often changes the dynamic within the family in a good way. I talked to students when I did campus ministry years ago about uh, whether they grew up in the church home and those kind of things. And it was fascinating for me the stories I would hear from students who didn't grow up from the earliest stages as Christians, but they were maybe in middle school or in high school when their parents became Christians. And they say, I can remember the change that came over my dad when he started reading the Bible every day and he started trying to have family devotions with us. I can remember what that was like. And that had a huge impact on these young people because they saw the gospel really change their dad and really change their mom. And it took them on a different course in life. And that's what we're seeing here with this woman and and, uh, her family is... Jesus has stepped in. Okay. So what do we do here? One, bring Jesus into your mess. We have two things, a personal thing and a a big picture thing. Bring Jesus into your mess. We can entrust ourselves fully and completely to him. We can trust him. We think he's right in everything. We think he's good and powerful. We can trust him and we can believe him. You can bring your mess to Jesus, and it's not going to be too big for him. It's not going to be too ugly for him. In this passage, uh, you know, he didn't just have a person who's bringing one small thing. This is the perfect storm. This is the crisis moment, and Jesus says, "Bring this to me," and he receives you. And along with that, along with that, I want you to realize that uh, he didn't just he doesn't just save us from a demon. He saves us from hell forever because of his death and burial and resurrection on the cross. And for you in here, uh, I've made mistakes as a parent in my parenting. I wish I had had different conversations with my kids at various points. I realized that I, there were things that I left undone, undone and unsaid. I realized that. And you probably see that with your own life. But what this passage is inviting us to do is to say, today's a good day to start over with Jesus. This woman had done all sorts of things that got her daughter in this terrible situation. And here she's starting over. And part of her story is, Jesus intervened in my life, and I'm seeking to follow him now. So today can be a day when you say, Jesus forgives all that I've done. I've got a fresh start. I can, I can learn from all of the mistakes I've made and enter in in a different way into my family. That's small picture. Big picture is this. Uh, bring Jesus into your tire. And what do I mean by that? And what do I think the passage is getting at with this. Jesus took his disciples to tire to teach his disciples about his mission. That, uh, that saving faith is for all types of people. Even people you would completely and totally reject. And... One of the things we recognize in this is Jesus has now left the borders of uh, Judea. He's up in a different territory. He's in Tyre. He's in a completely different kind of culture. They're not back in Jerusalem trying to defend Jewish culture. They are off in Tyre in a completely different culture, bringing the truth of God into that. Where do you think you are? Are you in Jerusalem? Or are you in Tyre? We're in Tyre. And one of the things that I think is significant about this in this passage is his, his apostles go into Tyre with him. And the apostles say to this woman, you know, send her away. We don't want her to be here with us. But Jesus doesn't shake his fist. He doesn't shake his head. He doesn't get angry. Instead, he loves this person and accepts and receives her in her brokenness, Right? Culturally, right now, I think the church has adopted some of the the worst interactions that our culture has modeled for us. Uh, we become like the apostles and the, the disciples in this passage, and I think what Jesus is calling us to do is to learn from Him, actually follow Him on this, because we have people in our culture that are really broken by the things that our culture is saying about people. They have broken lives, but we have the truth and we have the gospel, and we have the Messiah, we have all the things that can bring healing to the world around us. We need to be clear on the truth, but we also need to be clear on God's grace and his love to other people. This is a quote from George Whitfield. He said, When you hear of a notorious sinner, instead of thinking you do well to be angry, beg of Jesus Christ to convert and make him a monument of his free grace to say we love the broken people around us in the gospel. And the only way you will really do this is if you see yourself not being on the same playing field as Jesus, but like this woman saying, I don't even deserve a place at the table, but Jesus has been gracious to me, and it's not just giving me crumbs, but I'm now adopted in Christ, and I'm welcome at this table, and that's made all the difference. Let me show you a little bit how this might work. When I was up at uh, Clemson doing campus ministry, there's a guy who worked with the, the Baptist Collegiate Ministry there named Peter Hyatt. His, uh, do any of y'all know what the name Peter means in, the, in Greek? In rock or stone. His firstborn son is named Stone Hyatt, which I thought was kind of cool. That's a cool way of like having dad's name. Uh, but Peter told his story, uh, his his conversion story. He said when he was in his teens, growing up he wanted nothing to do with Christians he just wanted to be happy he just wanted he was like every other kid in our culture I just want to be happy on my terms a lot of drugs, a lot of drinking, a lot of partying. he graduated from high school things began to tank a little bit he didn 't have money for things his parents were putting him out so he had to go work at this carpet factory so He wanted nothing to do with Christians, and who happens to be the first person he meets on the first day of the job is a guy named Big Dave. He said it was just this black guy, huge, and Big Dave is walking through the carpet factory with a hat on that said, I walk with Jesus. And Peter rolled his eyes, kind of like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. One of those here, he's going to kind of put it in my face. And, uh, And he said, you know, Big Dave did not put it in his face. He just kind of wore that around. But Big Dave actually won him over over time. And this is how, is Peter said he was very good at poking the bear, uh, making, getting Christians riled up and angry by po- poking them in places where he knew this is going to get them riled. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get them all fired up and angry at me. He loved it. He was good at it. So he would do this to Big Dave, and uh, Dave would just kind of shrug it off and continue loving him and loving him and loving him. And so finally, he's looking at Big Dave and he's recognizing Big Dave has something I don't have. All my pursuit of happiness, my daily use of drugs, I'm just trying to get to a place where I'm content. Big Dave has that. And so he started to interact with Big Dave and say, hey, talk to me about your life. Uh, tell, Tell me what's going on. And finally, he asked Big Dave the question. He said, why are you a Christian? And Big Dave said, well, when I was younger, I did a lot of drugs and alcohol, and Peter couldn't believe it. He said, really, you? And he said, yeah. And so, Big Dave talked about how Jesus had met him in his brokenness, redeemed him, forgiven him, and given him a new life where he's now stable. He's a different foundation in his life than what he had before. His life was completely different. So, Peter went away. He said, I didn't go to church. I didn't get involved with in a small group or anything. He said, I went away that day and I prayed to Jesus and said, Jesus, come into my life and rescue me and save me. Make a faith, a faith that's rooted in Jesus, that sees Jesus as the pinnacle, to see Jesus as the, as this, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah for the world. He says to this woman, you have great faith. And he calls us to say, believe in the great person that she believed in. We have a great redeemer. We have a great savior. We have reason to have great faith. So let me pray. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.